Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the wonderful weather you've given to us. Again, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for being with us every step of the way. We thank you for all these truths and promises that you give to us in your word. That again, as the world runs around not having any clue what's going to happen in November or when's it, when this pandemic will end, we, we know the truth. We know that we don't need to fear. We have the rock. And we have the peace that comes along with faith in the rock, Jesus Christ. So Lord, if we've walked into this place or watching this online and we have burdens, we have concerns, we have things weighing us down, we have things that are distracting us from the truths and promises in your word, I pray that you would remove those. That we may just be one with you and soak up your word. And not only would we soak it up, but then we'd wring it out <laughs> in somebody else's life that we would take the truths that we learned today and pour them into somebody else. I pray that we leave this place changed people. In Jesus' name, amen. There's an article published earlier this year on Review.com entitled, 36 Items on Amazon You Never Knew You Needed. Here are a few of what I thought were universally desirable. The first one. First up here, is a cereal bowl you never knew you needed until this very moment. <laughs> no one likes soggy cereal that quickly turns into a paste, so this divided bowl keeps your cereal dry and, crun and crunchy until you're ready to get each bite into the milk. Next up is this set of pizza scissors. Picture this. It's a Friday night. You've just taken out a frozen pizza out of your oven. It's loaded with your favorite toppings and looks just like the picture on the box. You go to cut it with a pizza cutter or a knife, and what happens? All those delicious toppings just start sliding all over the place, and the cheese gets all pulled off, and you're left with a pizza that looks like a three-year-old cut it, right? <laughs> In come these scissors that apparently are fitted with a spatula under the bottom part of them that you can't see because they're under the pizza here, that you can just lift out the, the, piece, the slice of pizza with. You're able to cut through the pizza cleanly and lift out a perfectly cut slice from the baking pan, or so they claim anyway. By the way, who buys a frozen pizza with eggs on it? I don't, I don't know. All right, and here's the last item you never knew you needed, and when you see it, you're going to let out a collective, oh, yeah. And I better not catch anyone on their Amazon app on their phone during this message. Here we go. Okay, say goodbye to having to maneuver a colander over your sink while you simultaneously try to pour scalding hot boiling water through it. You just clip this colander to the edge of your pot and pour the water out. It's got already close to 5,000 positive reviews on Amazon. Now let me make sure I'm looking at the camera when I say this. You're welcome, Amazon. I'll be waiting for my check. <laughs> All of these items were previously obscure items that you never knew you needed until you knew they existed. Most of us probably didn't know they existed up to this point, but now that we do, we can't wait for me to just hurry up and get this over with so we can go on Amazon and buy them. In our parable this morning, there is an obscure thing that at the time of Jesus originally giving this parable was especially obscure. 
But unlike these gadgets we just looked at, this thing will be what humanity has always been longing for and always been searching for. And from the time Jesus walked this earth until the time he returns, this obscure thing will end up growing into the most globally reaching movement this world has ever seen. Last week was our last parable in the Gospel of Matthew. That parable of the talents we talked about last week is the last recorded parable in Matthew before Jesus institutes the Last Supper, which we're going to be observing in a, in a little bit. Before he's arrested, before he's tried, tortured, and nailed to the cross. It's the last parable in Matthew before Jesus takes his last breath on the cross and his first breath in his physically resurrected body. And it's the last parable in Matthew before Jesus gives the great commission to his disciples and then ascends back to heaven. But the parables in the New Testament are not over. We're only about halfway through. There are a couple in Mark that are not included in Matthew. We'll be covering the first one of those two in Mark this morning. Mark starts out this parable with a famous line that clearly labels that what, what will follow will be one of Jesus' parables. You, you, if you brought your Bible with you, turn to Mark chapter 4. If you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to Mark chapter 4. It's the second book in the New Testament. Uh, if, you, if you don't want to do that, I'm sure you brought your smartphone with you. Look it up in your favorite Bible app. Uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 26. You see here, Jesus starts it out with that famous line, the kingdom of God is like. So now we know that this is a shoe-in for a parable, what can be categorized as one of Jesus' parables. Now before this, in Mark, Jesus has already given uh, Mark's version of, of Jesus' parable of the seeds scattered on the four different types of soil. You remember that? We covered that parable as recorded by Matthew a while ago while we were still outdoors. I don't know if you remember that or not. But what's interesting to note is that both parables, both the parable that, that, uh, that the farmers scattering seed on four different types of soil and the parable we're covering this morning, both parables start out with very similar language. In Mark's telling of, of the previous parable, he says, listen, a farmer went out to plant some seed. In the parable we're covering this morning, Mark says, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. It's very similar, right? You can see there's very similar language used. Jesus may have wanted to draw the connection between those two parables, between that parable of the four types of soil and this parable that albeit different with different main points, they both have to do with the growth of something. With the parable of the, of the four soils, right? It's the growth of the gospel message or the lack thereof within a person's heart. With the parable we're talking about this morning, it's a different kind of growth. The growth in this morning's parable is of what Jesus exactly opens up the parable with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like. And then he's going to go on to describe the kingdom of God or one aspect of the kingdom of God. As we well know, as we've been going through these parables, when Jesus opens up a parable with the kingdom of God is like, what he's then going to be talking about in story form has something to do with his future millennial kingdom that he will establish on this earth. 
In the parables we, we, we had been talking about for about a month, towards the end of Matthew, those had to do with the first return of Jesus, which would set in motion all the other end times events, culminating in his full second coming and establishment of that messianic millennial kingdom. Now, what in the world am I talking about? Jesus' messianic millennial kingdom on earth? What in the world am I talking about? The Bible describes that at a certain point, unknown to everybody but God the Father, but what could happen at any moment, Jesus will come down out of heaven and call those who truly put their faith and trust in him for their salvation up to meet him in the air. What's very important to note is that at that point, Jesus will not touch his feet to the ground at that point. Both those who have already died and those who are still alive at that point, who are believers in Jesus, will be snatched up from the earth to meet Jesus in the air, and we will then always be with him, God's word promises. It will happen in the flash of the blinking of an eye. That's how quickly it will happen, right there. Did you even see that? <laughs> Probably not, right? It will happen in the flash of the blinking of an eye, and those who thought their inherent goodness earned them heaven, or those who faked their faith their entire life, will be revealed to be who they really are, because they're going to be left back on earth. Following that moment on earth will come a seven-year period of unprecedented judgment upon the earth called the Great Tribulation when God will pay back the world for its thousands of years of unspeakable evil. During that time of chaos, a global world leader will emerge, whom the Bible refers to as the Antichrist, who will delude most of the world's population into believing that he's the true Messiah and that he's the savior of the world. Eventually, he will lead the world's armies against Israel to destroy it, and according to Old Testament prophecy, he will be partially successful. There will be much death and destruction at his hands, at his army's hands. But just when the Antichrist and his armies think they've conquered God's chosen people, Jesus will burst out of heaven with us and the armies of heaven at his back. He will only need to utter one word, and like a sword coming out of his mouth, that word will annihilate those armies. Jesus will fully come down to earth at that point, set his feet upon the Mount of Olives, and establish what is described by Scripture as the Messianic, or the Millennial Kingdom, where he will physically rule from the world's capital, Jerusalem. It's referred to as the Millennial Kingdom because it will last for a thousand years. As we discussed last week, what may be part of, that, of the reward that those who serve Jesus faithfully right now will be rewarded with opulent and honorable positions in that kingdom hierarchy ruling under the authority of King Jesus. That Millennial Kingdom will be a time of unprecedented peace, prosperity, political stability, and governmental justice unlike this world has ever seen. And I think we can all yell a hearty amen to that, right? Whatever you thought of the first presidential debate this past week, I think it's pretty safe to say that this is something we all long for. 
On top of all this kingdom blessing, Satan himself will be bound up for those thousand years, unable to wreak any havoc. I can't wait. Can you? That was pathetic. I'm sorry. I know it's in the morning, but you've got to do a little bit better than that. I can't wait. Can you? All right. Somebody get some coffee. Okay. But <laughs> we wonder as we look around us at all this division in the world, and especially in our country, and violence, and misunderstanding, and we look at ourselves, and we wonder, how do we get from here to there? That's the question Jesus answers next in verses 27 through 28. And we read, And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, and then the mature grain in the head. We don't know what kind of scientific knowledge Jesus' listeners would have had at this point as to how scientifically a plant goes from seed to sprout. Most humans for thousands of years believed that deities had everything to do with seeds for fertility. You can go back through all the civilizations of world history and find that every civilization had a deity of fertility that they offered sacrifices to in order to have a good harvest. Baal that Canaanite god that tripped up the Israelites time and time again was the Canaanite god of fertility. The Greeks had Demeter as their god of the harvest, and the Romans had Saturn and Ceres. Fun fact I found out, the ground-up grain known to us as cereal got, gets its name from Ceres, the Roman goddess of grain crops and agriculture. Of course, Jesus' Jewish listeners hopefully attributed their harvest prosperity to the one true God. So Jesus is piggybacking off of that already inherently established belief. He's not, as some critics of the Bible might point out, being woefully ignorant. That no one has any clue as to the scientific explanation of a sprouting seed. Jesus is the one who had a hand in creating the world. I know he knows how a seed sprouts. Jesus knew his listeners would immediately connect what he was describing to attributing a seed sprouting to God. That's what he's picking, piggybacking off of. That's what Jesus wanted to establish as theological truth when it comes to the future millennial kingdom. See, as one biblical scholar noted, at the time of Jesus telling this story, the Jewish people already had one part of the Messianic kingdom pretty firmly established in their brains, and that was this. The Messianic kingdom would cover the entire earth and would be inescapable. Nobody would be able to hide from it. And that's true. But the Jewish people simply thought that God would appear out of nowhere, and that global kingdom would immediately take place with nothing leading up to it, with nothing building up to it. Here, however, Jesus is establishing a very, very earth-shattering and important truth about that kingdom, about that messianic kingdom. Yes, God would appear as Jesus, and that kingdom would be established immediately. But something else would happen first, and was happening already before their very eyes. 
before Jesus would set his feet on the Mount of Olives and establish that immediate kingdom. That something was this. The seed of that messianic kingdom had just been planted. The seed of that messianic kingdom had just been planted. All of Jesus' sermons and illustrations and parables, which would be backed up by his coming death and resurrection, are that seed. This ragtag and obscure band of disciples led from this nobody from Nazareth, just like a seed, would eventually sprout, grow a stem, and then the bud of a grain, and then fully result in the mature head of a grain. That obscure religious movement that no one knew they needed, most of the world didn't even know existed at that point, would eventually end up taking over the entire world and would culminate in the global messianic kingdom. At the establishment of the millennial kingdom, there will be a harvest, just as we read in verse 29. But when the crop permits... He immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Matthew describes this harvest as a judgment. A judgment in Matthew 25. And we read, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. This is the beginning of the millennial kingdom here. And all the nations will be gathered in his presence, And he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. Those who survived the tribulation and survived Armageddon will be brought before the newly established king of the world, Jesus Christ. Those who chose to follow the Antichrist will be judged and thrown into the same lake of fire that was prepared to torment Satan and his demons. That's unfathomable. Those who faithfully served him during that horrific time by physically caring for those society had turned its back on would gain entrance into the millennial kingdom in their physical and unglorified bodies. Remember, they were the ones that were not raptured before. They will enter the millennial kingdom in their physical and unglorified bodies. That's important. Those people with their unglorified bodies, unlike we, who had already been raptured before that point and were already given glorified bodies, those who will enter the kingdom in their physical bodies will be able to have children. And as this will be an unprecedented time of abundance, they will have a lot of children. Those children will be the citizens that make up this 1,000-year messianic kingdom, and those children's descendants will have to make a choice at the end of it when Satan is released one last time. They're going to have to make a choice. Are they going to pledge allegiance to King Jesus, whom they've seen as the king of the world for the past thousand years, or follow after Satan's deceptions? 
sadly, there will be a sizable chunk of the world's population at that point that will, will be deceived by Satan into the foolish notion of attacking Jerusalem while Jesus is still reigning from Jerusalem. Think about how foolish of a battle plan that is. Obviously, we know how that will end. They will be obliterated, and their leader, Satan, will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. I'm not making any of this up. You can find all of this in the book of Revelation. So Jesus' main point of this parable is this. What the world thinks is obscure and meaningless. Jesus, this nobody from Nazareth, and his ragtag band of disciples, flawed in so many ways, would over time sprout, grow, and would eventually mature into the full culmination of the Messianic kingdom on earth. Here's the big question. Where are we in all of this now? Where are we now? We're in that growing season. Somewhere in between the sprouting and growing the stem. Somewhere in that growing season. Somewhere in between sprouting and growing the stem. It may seem like the millennial kingdom is taking forever to get here. But rest assured, it's coming. Are you going to be in it by way of Jesus' first return for his church, known as the rapture? Or are you going to take the very volatile gamble that you'll survive the following worldwide judgment and destruction? And even if you do, if you still never accepted Jesus as your only hope for salvation and lived it out, we see in Scripture that you'll still have to stand before King Jesus in his new millennial kingdom and still be thrown into the lake of fire prepared for Satan and his demons. That is an incredibly powerful message. It's Jesus who says it himself that we already read. The king will turn to those on his left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. That is huge. The world of indescribable torment that was prepared for the most evil creatures to exist in this world is the same place anyone who never accepts Jesus as their savior from that fate and king over their lives is going to go. Not my words. Jesus' words. You can decry how unfair you think that is your entire life. And it still won't change God's perfect justice, his perfect standard. And the only way he's provided you to escape from that still doesn't change that. Those, those who have raised kids, if your kid comes up, you're disciplining them. and your kid, It doesn't matter how many times your kid says, that's so unfair. Is that going to change the discipline towards them? No. The only way of escape is to be brutally honest with yourself and understand you can never be good enough to measure up to God's standard of perfect goodness. The only way of escape is to accept that the perfect sacrifice, the God-man, Jesus, took your place and paid the sin payment of death for you. 
The only way of escape is to then ask God for forgiveness of your sin based on Jesus taking your place and committing to live the rest of your life for him. Because guess what? There will be a full and complete defeat of evil and darkness someday. There will be a day. There will be a full and complete defeat of evil and darkness someday. In fact, when Jesus physically died, the Bible tells us that he descended into hell to tell the powers of darkness, you lost, I won. And then three days later, crushed any hope the powers of the evil one had for winning by rising from the dead three days later. Brothers and sisters, if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior and King, you're playing for the winning team. You know we've already won. There's no fourth quarter comeback. There's no sitting on the edge of your seat, clenching your teeth as the final seconds count down, like I did during the Bills game last week. You already have a victory. It's coming. Live like it. You already have the victory. It's coming. Live like it. The overall theme of this parable is that just as God is the one who gives a good agricultural harvest by adjusting the forces of nature to enable that, God is the one who is sovereign over all the events of this world that will eventually culminate in the millennial kingdom. He is the one who will make all of this happen just as he is the one who made our salvation even possible by raising Jesus from the dead. Since we're not in control of what will happen in this world, as already predetermined by Almighty God, all we can do is live for him right now. That's all we can do. The truth, that truth, is especially poignant in this election year. No matter who we like or who we don't like, more and we wring our hands and we worry and fret and lose sleep and raise our blood pressure you have no control over what will happen so stop acting like you do and stop worrying like you do we utilize our our, our citizenship right to vote but ultimately he controls the course of world events he removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. It's all what God wants to do. And he is the one who will make it happen. And he's going to be the one to do away with all of the world's leaders at one point and set up the Messiah as king over the entire world. He's the one who's going to do all of these things. So what are we to do right now? Trust him. He knows what he's doing. Trust him. Trust him and spend our time living for him and serving him. When we do that, another extension interpretation of this parable comes to light. When we share our hope found only in Jesus, with someone else who doesn't have that hope, we too plant a seed in their heart. All we can do is plant seeds. That's all we can do. Plant seeds. All we can do is plant seeds in hearts, and just like with an agricultural harvest, 
we trust God with the sprouting and growth of those seeds. Just like how we are powerless to make a seed sprout, you can't plant a seed and clench your fists and will it to sprout. That's not going to happen. It has nothing to do with you. Just as we are powerless to make a seed sprout, except for providing the best conditions for it, we are powerless to make any spiritual seeds we plant in someone else's heart sprout and grow. We can provide good conditions for it, but all we can do is plant the seed and leave it in God's hands. So don't be discouraged if and when you don't see any spiritual growth in someone you've patiently been planting spiritual seeds into for decades. You cannot force those seeds to sprout. You cannot do it. You're powerless to do that. The only one who has the power to make those seeds sprout is God. All we can do is plant the seeds and then wait, just as the farmer in Jesus' parable did, like we just talked about. Wait and pray. Wait and pray and trust that if God wants those seeds to sprout, those seeds will sprout. And just as you spent decades planting the seeds, but someone else gets to harvest that soul and finally lead that person to Jesus, that doesn't mean you can't rejoice with them. You were a fellow partner in that because ultimately it wasn't even that person's power, you know, job. It was God who was the one to make that growth happen. The Apostle Paul explains this exactly when he tells the Corinthian church in connection with the spiritual work he did and another preacher named Apollos did. After all, who is Apollos? And who is Paul? We are only God's servants through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work that God gave us. That's all we did. I planted the seed in your hearts and Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together with the same purpose. And this comes up again. And both will be rewarded for their own hard work. For we, who, we are both God's workers and you are God's field. You are God's building. He's talking to the Corinthian church there. That passage also describes, like what I just said, what we've been touching on week after week after week. Jesus' kingdom is coming. And when he comes back for us, he's not coming back empty-handed. He's bringing reward with him. He's not coming back empty-handed. He's bringing reward with him. So while we wait for that millennium kingdom, we work. While we wait, we work. We plant the seeds of Jesus' truth. And all the while, while we're planting seeds in people's hearts, we're earning ourselves additional reward when Jesus comes back for us. Guess what? It's a win-win situation. So brothers and sisters, we got to ask ourselves the big question, what are we doing? What are we doing in light of that? Are we doing any of that? Are we joining in on any of that? It doesn't take very much to plant a seed 
that God can grow in someone's heart, especially right now when so many are without hope or are putting all their hope in a human president or have no clue what to make out of anything that's going on in our country or world right now. You can say a simple sentence to them as to where your hope is and why you can be so peaceful and why you can be so calm. You can explain to them how you are ultimately not going to go running scared either from this pandemic or who's going to be president or any given thing because your soul is sealed for heaven. And when they ask, how can you be so sure? You have a wide open door. Wide open door. Let me tell you how I can be so sure. We still have work to do, brothers and sisters. Regardless of a pandemic, don't give up. Regardless of a pandemic. We are not beholden to a pandemic. We are not beholden to fear of anything. And we're not even beholden to what anyone thinks of us either. We are beholden to Jesus. That's who we're beholden to. He's given us VIP passes into his kingdom, but we still have work to do. We still have work to do while we wait. Don't give up. Don't let up. Don't take your foot off the gas pedal now. We don't know when our king will return for us. Setting up everything in motion globally for the culmination of his earthly kingdom. I want to end our time with a couple of powerful prophecies from the Old Testament. I don't want to hear anybody close their Bible yet. I want to end our time with a couple of powerful prophecies from the Old Testament to make us remember that this kingdom is coming and to drive us to work for the king now as we wait for it. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One and was led into his, his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every na race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. In the end, the holy people of the Most High will be given the kingdom, and they will rule forever and ever. And this famous Christmas passage, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all of eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. Jesus already came once as a baby, as a child, and as our perfect sacrifice. 
Jesus is coming again to claim his right as king over the world and with it his never-ending kingdom of justice and righteousness. Who's going to make it happen? God will make it happen. Two last questions. First of all, are you going to be there? Are you going to be in that kingdom? Or are you going to be cast into the lake of fire that was prepared for the devil and his demons? If you are going to be in the kingdom of God because you've accepted Jesus as as your Savior and your King, let's live as if we're already there. Let's live as if we're already there. Planting the seeds in the here and now, doing the work God still has for us to do in the here and now, because Scripture says our citizenship is in heaven. Let's live like it. Do the work Jesus still has for us to do know where our real home is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful parable in Mark. We thank you for everything that can be gleaned out from it, everything that we can apply to our lives. Lord, I pray again, as I've prayed week after week after week, if there's anybody here or watching online that has still not made that decision to place their faith and trust in you and seal their eternity forever, I pray that would do that right now. That they would recognize just how big of a deal their sin is. Be honest with themselves. Know that they can't be good enough to be with you. Know that Jesus took their place on the cross, paid their payment of sin in death that they had no hope to pay. He was the perfect sacrifice. Accept that for themselves. Own it for themselves. And then ask forgiveness of their sin from you on only that basis. And then commit the rest of their lives to be pleasing to you. And, Lord, for those of us who have already made that commitment, who already have made that decision, let's live like we already live in that kingdom. Let's do the work that you have for us to do in the here and now, keeping our heads screwed on straight, knowing where our peace comes from, knowing what our foundation is, doing the work you have for us to do. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.